Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. <laughs> so do I, sorry. Severine, this is, this is yours. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our fifth uh, unpacking uh, contract law podcast. I am uh, today the mistress of ceremony, uh, giving Tim uh, a little bit of a break. And today we are talking about uh, the Supreme Court decision, uh, Globalia Business Travel or the new Flamenco. So, uh, briefly, the facts uh, the parties had entered into a, a, a charter party um, uh, for two years when orally the contract was uh, uh, purportedly extended by another two years. Um, however, uh, so the contract, that further extension to the parties uh, to end their relationship in 2009. However, uh, Globalia challenged that that oral agreement uh, had uh, extended the contract for another two years. And so they re-delivered uh, the vessel to the owners in October 2007. The owners uh, accepted uh, the breach, uh, which was repudiatory, and claimed uh, damages for that breach. Uh, for the loss of profit um, that they would have made during the additional two-year charter. Um, the owners uh, then, uh, when they received uh, the vessel back, decided to sell the vessel and they sold it for uh, nearly 23 million uh, US dollars. Uh, the value uh, of the vessel uh, at the end of the further uh, two years, uh, if the charter party had been really extended, had following the financial crisis uh, significantly dropped and was around uh, 7 million US dollars. So given the significant difference in value uh, of uh, the vessel, uh, the charterer claimed that uh, credit should be given uh, to the profit that the owners had made. The parties were bound by uh, an arbitration clause. Uh, the arbitrator said, yes, indeed, um, there should be uh, credit should be given. This was appealed uh, to the High Court where Popper will uh, said no, there is uh, no link between uh, the sale of the uh, capital value and so it is therefore completely irrelevant. Appeal uh, was made to the Court of Appeal uh, which said yes, the sale of the vessel was uh, an, uh, an act of mitigation and so therefore credit should be given 
And then appeal was given, uh, leave to appeal uh, was given to the Supreme Court, which effectively reinstated uh, Popol Will's uh, decision and no credit uh, should be due. In a reasonably short <laughs> decision, um, Lord uh, Clark gave the... Um, uh, the, the the judgment, the leading judgment, sorry. Um, but all the law lords, uh, all the other uh, law lords, Lord Newberger, Munz, Sumption and Hodge, uh, agreed with him. So, quite a short decision, but quite an interesting uh, decision, uh, I find. Um, so, the decision effectively reiterates the uh, importance of uh, causation. Um, do you agree? Is that a welcome decision on that point? It does clarify the importance of causation. And I think on that it has, it is welcome. But maybe you disagree with me. Oh. Maybe, Tim? Uh, all right, I'll, I'll go. Um... I think a number of things are interesting about this. Um, firstly, as you, you notice, there's four levels of hearing. So you've got uh, a, a switch at each level. Yes, no, yes, <laughs> yes. no. Um, that, so that's interesting. So, you know, one says it's a short judgment. You might infer from that that it ought to be quite straightforward. But uh, previous courts didn't find it very straightforward. Um, <clears throat> the other point I think is quite interesting uh, is it was pretty strong commercial background uh, at the Supreme Court level. Uh, Severi, you, you referred to the judges there. They're all what I would uh, refer to as sort of strong uh, commercial uh, sound, obviously, um, experienced judges, but from the commercial bar or their experiences there. So um, for that reason uh, and the, the unanimous nature of the judgment, uh, you would uh, view it as, as highly authoritative. Um, you, you will guess that, that I would say on the causation point, which is your specific question, I, I see this as what I call Hoffmannian, and that's the word that I've invented. Um, and so I would applaud that, I think. Uh, and so would Lord Hoffman. I think he would say this is obviously correct. <laughs> it's probably the way he would actually put it where he's sitting um, on that uh, panel. Um, I think what is interesting, though, is the kind of sort of tangle that one can get into in terms of identifying the particular loss. Do, do you not think that you know sort of causation is a tricky subject just generally never mind for students but just for anyone um but uh you know you're trying to establish what the loss is and so you're tracking back to a breach necessarily uh, because if you haven't got the breach you haven't got the loss so that's sort of all predicated on what is the nature of the breach um, and so I, I would say, yes, it's, this is obviously correct because the breach was to do with an income stream, as the, the Lords put it. It's, a, it's an income type obligation that is paying chartering for a period of, of time. Uh, so the only loss that one really ought to be looking at, I think, is uh, an income one or at least in principle. And so 
I think one starts from a, a, a severe question mark over a capital value. Uh, what's interesting is I think Lord Clark rejects uh, a sort of technique that we've previously had. Um, that is the concept of benefits which are of the same or a different kind. Uh, you remember that in some of the older cases, they sort of distinguish consequences as a, as a result of the breach. If it's of a different kind, uh, then it's irrelevant to calculating the loss. And I think it's interesting that um, the Supreme Court in this one have sort of jettisoned that whole idea. So there's a whole great series of cases I think we would have to chuck out of the window on the basis of that, um, you know, that, that it's too vague as a concept. Um, and I, th I think that's probably helpful um, to, to that extent, um, but you're, you're still in a sense articulating it in terms of whether it's the same or a different kind, uh, but we're, we're using sort of different language, perhaps more precise language, I suppose. So this one, I, I would say this is um, a breach that gave rise to a loss of income, and therefore one must look for benefits, gains that are of an income nature. Um, but that's coming back to, you know, loss of a same or a different kind, but, but other terminology. So I, I would have difficulty with um, giving credit for a capital value. And in terms of causation, I think there were two key points um, that one could pick out of the judgment that really sort of focuses uh, your, your attention acutely on some facts. Um, the first one that I think was particularly important was the fact that under these contractual arrangements, the ship owner, um, <coughs> the, the claimant in this instance, uh, could have sold the vessel at any time with or without the benefit of the, the charter. Um, and um, so that could have happened. And I suppose if we use the language of causation, that makes it a sort of the, the occasion for something happening rather than the cause of something happening. It's, it's rather hard to, to, to get your head around. But uh, in essence, the vessel, if it could have been sold at any time, uh, what relevance, therefore, does it have that it was sold at this particular time? Um, uh, so the breach might have given them a reason for thinking more acutely about a sale, the occasion rather than the cause, but didn't uh, wasn't a, a main substantive uh, consequence of the breach because they could have done it at any time. And presumably in the shipping industry, that does happen. You sell a vessel with the benefits of the charter and the charter is still running, but the ownership of, of the vessel has changed and it really matters not in a practical sense because the the uh, the purchaser is taking the uh, vessel's ownership subject to the terms of the charter so the charter is interested should be fully protected i think the other key point that i picked out was that um, if the market on sale uh, was low in 2007 compared with 2009 uh, when this contract should have run uh, the ship owner could not have claimed the lost capital value. And I think that's that's the sort of killing point. And, and uh, I'm not sure that the Lordship sort of articulate this clearly as a guide for future. But I think this playing with the counter balance, as it were, um, 
is is a very good acid test. So you know, if you're playing with what the values would have been uh, in the in the opposite situation, uh, would that make any difference to the the quantum of the claim? And and I think that that is a, a killing point, as it were. So I would pick those two key points out that support the argument on causation that the capital value, <clears throat> excuse me, is irrelevant to a claim. Uh, for a breach that has caused a lost income stream. So uh, using the language of Lord Hoffman in terms of causation, uh, he might say uh, their responsibility, the charterers, uh, was to uh, pay uh, an income stream, uh, the, the rent, if you like, of the chartering fees. Uh, and they've put paid to that by their breach. So the capital value is uh, wholly ir irrelevant to that. So that would be my take on it, I think. don't know what Tim thinks. Believe it or not, I think I agree. Houston, we have a tiny problem. So I, I, I think I, I agree with you, Maggie. I find the, you know, the language that you, I, I think you have summarised, you know, the position very well. And I think the, uh, the distinction for me, for, for me, what what is welcome in these decisions? So I agree with you. You know, I mean, I played a little bit the devil's advocate. It's a short decision, but yes, of course, indeed, because it has been going through. You know, four sets of um, it has been looked at four times effectively. You know, yes, it it, it should be uh, reasonably clear. But the um, and indeed, I was quite amused as well by the yes, no, yes, no. Uh, um, so I I think in effect, what is really interesting is the language which makes it clear uh, in articulating why there is no causation. Uh, I think what you have said is something that Lord Clark, sell, uh, Lord Clark uh, said about uh, the, uh, the premature termination is the occasion for selling the vessel, but it is not uh, the legal cause. So as he says at paragraph 33, the causal link fails at both ends uh, of the transaction. And I think articulating it in terms of loss of income and then the capital value and then highlighting that actually that's just indeed, um, you know, they benefited from the property that they had. But indeed, if they had sold it at a loss earlier, you know, that wouldn't have uh, been taken into consideration. So on that, I think indeed this is uh, a, 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 clear, a, a clear decision and that has to be welcome if uh, for no other reason than pedagogical to try to to, to, to help students um, actually looking at causation and I think that's you know so capital value and income stream. but then what you know one, um, one just to jump in one wonders therefore why there were four levels of hearing that went yes, yes no yes absolutely. no <laughs> well, I'm not yes. sure that's that surprising. Am I back? Yes. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, so first of all, I agree with Maggie, and that's that's quite unusual. So I think we need to highlight that. Um, right, <laughs> I think right you must here. be feeling ill. I, I, I think you're yeah, feeling it's, ill. It's, it's the end of term. I think is is must be affecting me. Um, the the first thing that struck me as well is the composition, of course, of the Supreme Court. I mean, you can't get much more market individualist basing this, you know. And and what have we got? The most certain. You know the the focus on certainty here is is and predictability is is the focus. 
Do so, those guys wear badges that says market individualist on them? I would say so. I would say so. I think there's a big neon sign above their head. If, if I don't, uh, I a... shouldn't label people. I, I would call them <laughs> strong commercial background. That's what strong I would com- Go on then. I, I'll go with strong commercial <laughs> background. Um, so, so originally that was that was my my thought on this case. If I was looking at the kind of overarching picture here. It seemed to me on the one hand that the Court of Appeal was trying to say, well, you know, we're, we're trying to share the gains here. One party has, has made some kind of gain um, and that we're trying to balance that against, um, uh, a, a, well, a, against the, the certainty point. The, the other aspect that I thought of in, in that context was, are, are we just... Is the court trying to avoid some kind of double recovery here? On the one hand, they're they're selling the vessel, they're getting quite the profit, or it appears to be quite the profit, and and on the other hand, um, uh, they're they're then also going to get um, whatever they would have got um, if the charter would would uh, yeah. But would how have can that, how, just to, just to argue with you, how the heck can that be double recovery? Because it's an asset which they own. Well, quite. So I think that's the that's that's how I changed my mind as we were as we as I was going through because oh, I, I I had forgotten that you were agreeing with me. I, I, very, I was very... actually agreeing with you, <laughs> um, possibly, possibly on a, on a different. So on the one hand, of course, you know we know that if they would have. Um, sold it and made a loss and they wouldn't have been able to recover that and so my question was where does that come from why why is that the case and i think on the one hand it's or or probably for the main reason that the the breaching party doesn't have any input right they they have no way in in uh, to to influence the decision of the sale of the vessel or not it's something that that um when i when i was first looking at the decision i thought well okay um the the breaching party is probably just simply not worth protecting as much here if we're trying to look at something below certainty but the other one but is But a breaching well. party never has control over how the other side is going to react, do they? Well, exactly. And that, that would justify why we wouldn't want them to share the loss if, the, if, a, if a loss was made by selling the vessel. And the I other, think it's just far simpler, far simpler that it's their asset. They can do what the heck they like with their asset. Quite. Yes. Quite. And therefore... But I also think the if if the uh, bridging party is sharing the loss, then it is to a certain extent punishing them, which is not the aim of uh, compensation. So therefore, you know, that has indeed, that has nothing to do with it. I mean, I think it will be in uh, funny enough when you talked about uh, certainty... Uh, that you know the the badges of the <clears throat> of the uh, uh, law lords is absolutely clear, but yet they did discuss you know public policy. You know that the uh, will is um, you know implied in, in in the in the in the decision uh, because they did refer quite a lot to his um, uh, uh, judgment. Um, and where he did talk several times to 
issues of justice, fairness and public policy, um, but precisely, you know, the other way around to ensure that the, the, the party in breach is just not going to benefit from, um, you know, um, anything. And so Copperwell was quite strong in making sure that the, uh, you know, credit should not be given. But I'm div- diverting. and you know, that but, but just remember, this sort of high level principles, justice, fairness, uh, public policy, as you put it, they they are so uh, a high level of generality as to really not be of any help at all to be frank i mean that that that's the general aim of all of the rules that we fashion for all branches of law and particularly contract law the public policy one though is interesting um because there are certain types of benefits that come following breach um that as a matter of public policy are ignored and so they are specific set of rules so the the obvious one that that i know of for example is insurance policies because that's sort of my area of interest i suppose <coughs> excuse me so uh, you can't argue that in terms of causation. That doesn't really work. You have to find some other rationale to justify why insurance policies that the, the claimant, the victim, as it were, has has uh, been able to uh, recover. And that's done on public policy grounds that they have made particular uh, arrangements themselves to protect themselves by virtue of a contract with a third party and insurer. Uh, and uh, public policy would say, you know, you know, you should reap the benefit of that. You've made the provision for it. We want to encourage people to make provision of that nature for themselves. And the, and it would be wrong against public policy for the uh, tortfeasor or the, the defendant in a contractual setting uh, to to reap the benefit of that that might act as a disincentive to people to take out insurance policies similarly we've got public policy rules on the same sort of argument uh, for pensions that uh, people take out uh, pensions uh, and it's a form of arrangement that you make for yourself as it were and and so we end up using those sort of latin tags of resintos alios or whatever it is severin you'd be far better at me with the latin on that one you know uh, extraneous if you like irrelevance to the relationship between uh, the wrongdoer and the, and the claimant, as it were. That's a, a clear aspect of public policy. But um, reference to justice and fairness, that doesn't get you anywhere, does it? You know, if you were a practitioner, you would say, well, what rules do we have for that? You know, what, what, am I say, what am I to say to a client to advise them if only the rules are what's just and what's fair? No help at all. Well, I I would disagree with that, Maggie, because I think <laughs> uh, Clark, you know, I I, I you know, look, look looking at my rough notes, you know, this has been mentioned three times uh, in the you know short uh, decision by reference to what Popplewell uh, was uh, saying, um, with no actual uh, clear link to cases. Actually, they could have simply said the aim of uh, compensation, you know, stop at the causal link. There is no causal link. The aim of the of compensation, Robinson and Harmon, is to simply uh, substitute performance uh, and not to punish the wrongdoer. Uh, but they, you know, the fact that after highlighting that. 
you know, there is there, there is a need for a causal link between breach and mitigation and mitigation and benefit. Um, Lord Clark then refers to Popple Will by saying, of course, consideration of justice and fairness and public policy are also important. And here, this is when he adds, especially if the wrongdoer appropriates them. So here, there was a clear uh, emphasis on the fact that uh, the wrongdoer should not benefit and should not be given uh, a credit. So in a way, we probably, by the fact that you are looking at it from an insurance viewpoint, maybe we um, look at it from a Well, I, I was only highlighting the... that as the classic instances for the ground of public policy. Uh, so if you put that on one side, the uh, the appeal to justice and fairness um, is not really specific enough uh, for the law to provide clear guidance. It's fine, and I'm, I don't argue with those concepts at all. Naturally, I, I wouldn't. But they're at a very high level of generality and probably underpin all of the rules that we're trying to teach students in contract law and all of the rules in tort law. So where does that actually get you in terms of a concrete guide? It, it, it's, it's, it's dangerous, isn't it? Because if, if that's all that we had, we would end up with what a judge feels is right, we can end up in a situation, though, and this is where the high, I think the high-level part comes in quite nicely, is, is we, we can end up in a situation where we get lost in the nitty-gritty, where, where we're focusing so yeah. much on, on principle that we're actually losing what the aim of the whole doctrine is. Right, and that's that's what we've got to remind ourselves here. And I think yeah, this well, is well. I agree. These are rationales and underpinning philosophies or principles, if you like. They're constantly used as a check yeah. on the precise rule that a court devises. That's fine. I don't argue with that at all. Not an iota. But in terms of just using justice, fairness, public policy as a rule. It's it's not enough. It's not exactly. clear enough. It's not precise. So enough. what what I was trying to do is trying to see where where the judges are in this um, in terms of these these overarching concepts. Where what what are they what are they emphasising here in this judgment? And and where I stopped was was where I was um, on. Oh, or the, the next step, as it were, in all of this, when I was talking about double recovery and all that business, I, I, I then shifted the focus to see, well, what obligations would this create if we did go the other way? And one of them would be, is would the failure to sell the vessel, for example, be a failure to mitigate? And that creates quite a dangerous precedent, doesn't it? We, we would then be in a situation where we'd say, OK, if you don't have an available market anymore, you need to find something else. Right. I, I let my house to someone um, to do to, to a company. Uh, we're in the middle of the pandemic. Therefore, I don't have an available market. Do I now have to sell the property in order to mitigate my losses? That would create obligations that, that go far beyond what we would expect normally and inject so much uncertainty where we're back to the whole market individuals reliance on certainty. And I think that is that is one of the aspects that are so interesting in this case. Right, well, I, 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 I would say, um, with 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 due respect to, to the lordships, that's the one disappointing bit of the judgment. I think, um, 
because uh, they are saying the same result is achieved, not arguing through uh, causation rules, but through uh, the rules about mitigation. Uh, but actually, uh, the, the whole thrust of, of what they're saying in the judgment really is that mitigation is not engaged at all here. It, it's not relevant. We, we don't get into an argument about mitigation because mitigation is assuming that there is a, a particular loss mm -hmm. to which you can uh, make some uh, improvement on, as it were. So the only loss here, coming back to where we started, is an income stream loss. Uh, whatever they're doing to mitigate that lost income stream, i.e. Uh, re-letting re the, the vessel out, rechartering it to, to a third party, that would be an act of mitigation because yeah. it is a, in a response to a particular loss. If, if you're following, I'm not explaining this probably very well, uh, but it's in, a, in response to a particular loss. So the word loss is not very helpful unless you stop and think, what loss are we talking about? And it can only be the loss that arises from a particular breach. So you're looking back, tracking back, what were they obliged to do? They were obliged to keep this wretched vessel for two more years and pay the, the chartering fees. And it is that loss, but only that loss, that is capable of being mitigated, if that makes sense. If you do something else that's not related to that particular loss, it's irrelevant. You can't even use the label mitigation. We don't go down that road at all. It's a red herring, if you like. So that's why I would come back to saying the sale of the vessel cannot be yeah. mitigation. It is irrelevant to the particular loss that they're claiming because the loss that they're claiming is an income stream loss. So a capital activity it just doesn't fall into any part of the rules that we have about mitigation. So that's the, the wee bit that I, when I looked at it, I thought, why, why are they not saying more clearly, um, not that it, it, the same result could be achieved through arguing the rules of litigation. It, it, surely it would be better to have said, um, it, this is not mitigation at all. End of. Well, I think they, they do that. I, I think they did actually. They they do say that um, you know what I was referring to. You know the, the 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 difference in value has nothing to do precisely because the capital value does not has nothing to do with the interest which is injured by the charterer's repudiation. And funnily enough, I think they do spend a lot of time saying that this is not an act. Uh, of mitigation, uh, and you know that's why they do explain in in some detail the difference between the loss of capital and the loss of income. So I would say they do that, and you know that therefore you know when uh, Lord Clark said that it fails at both ends uh, of the transaction, uh, it fails, uh, and so therefore that is not an act. I think funny enough that is the one element that is clear and therefore also helps to understand why it has nothing to do and so therefore to go into what you were saying Tim which I think is an interesting point as to whether they should have been actually you know we we don't have the details but did they try to find uh, another uh, another company to charter we don't know that no they did you know they took the decision so I think in relation to what Tim said whether 
in fact, one should be uh, forced uh, in order to mitigate the loss to sell the property, to take uh, the example. So that's why I think here it makes clear that the two had nothing to do. And so therefore, perhaps that is one element which protects against the risk that team you were just talking about, because precisely because they have nothing to do with each other. This is um, uh, uh, the, a, a pure commercial decision. And I think by highlighting that here they reaped the benefit that indeed they made a profit, but uh, they also highlight uh, at several points that um you know, they also bear the risk of it of, of the sale being at a loss, which has again nothing to do with it. And you know, so I think that's um you know, the capital value of the vessel is purely at the owner's risk. Uh, and funny enough, I go back to my policy ground because I think that is quite interesting that, you know, they do refer to it. And uh, Lord Clark at paragraph 22 says, because the capital value of the vessel is at the owner's risk to allow the charterer to appropriate the fruits of the owner's investment would be unfair and unjust. So again, here we go back to, you know, we don't want to punish uh, and yet, you know, yeah, there are some interesting um, reference to uh, policy and, and fairness. And I think that's um, where the, the Court of Appeal judgment is so interesting. It's, it seems that they're very worried about... Uh, one of the parties really gaining and and I don't think and this is Maggie where I agree with you I don't think there is a gain here I mean in money terms of course there is a gain in that they've sold it and they've sold it for a profit and they were wise and they sold it at the right time but it's a gain that is is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things partly because they they could sell it um and but uh, one other thing that's and, it and it's short lived, yes, of course, and and it could have all gone differently. I mean, who would have foreseen the the, the well? I think some people did, but the the economic crisis uh, um, that, that followed, you know, that was not foreseen. Uh, so it was largely luck um, in 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 what they did. And the other thing that I thought of as I was as I was looking at the case was that it's it it, it defeats the point to a certain extent of having an anticipatory breach and being able to accept that in the sense that you'd now need to wait until the entire end of the period to see whether, or you would have to wait to see whether the other party has made a benefit or not. You'd have to see where the market drops or goes in terms of that. So that injects even and more And the law is quite clear that you don't Well, do exactly, that, because it, it, it? Yeah. It, it disrupts the entire market, doesn't it? You know, you want well, to be Well, the whole idea of, of anticipatory breach, actually, correct me if I'm wrong, is to accelerate exactly, exactly. that moment uh, yeah. of choice, as it were, and, and they made their choice. Um, yeah. yeah. Yes. So in, in that sense, it makes complete sense. And again, we're coming back to the, the, the certainty aspect. Is it, it undermines the whole concept of anticipatory breach, which is you can bring it to an end and, and, and off you go on, on your way. Um, so uh, in that sense, it makes I think the judgment makes a lot of sense. I don't. I don't know what you think. That, that I. I noticed there was a the little point in Chitty on contracts that um, the the editors of that have have a wee bit of difficulty um, with the bit of Lord Clark's judgment where he says a sale might be relevant on the quantum of loss um, if a sale took place during the term of the repudiated charter. Then that sale might end the period for which the lost income stream has been sustained. 
in other words, the, the sale has ended the, the period of time running of your lost income stream because you have converted, if you like, that income stream into a capital value uh, on, on the sale of, of the vessel. So I wonder what you, th uh, Chitty says, not sure about that, but I, I, I don't see why Chitty says that they're not sure about that because... Um, so here, if they do take it as relevant during the period, then that reinstates that there is, you know, the, the benefit of the same kind, of a different kind, and yet here they therefore seem to say that it would be relevant. So here, uh, I didn't pick up on that, but that would indeed probably blur a little bit because it's either relevant or not relevant. Well, coming back, uh, you know, it, just to be devil's cannot... advocate, your, your fairness justice uh, idea, all right, if we just run with that for a minute. Uh, um, if you've got a, a charter period of, say, two years left to run uh, and the innocent party sells the vessel on your breach midway through after a year, are you with me? The, the, the whole argument is that early sale, if you like, has stopped the running of your income stream loss. You have decided to uh, uh, stop your losses running, as it were, uh, and you're converting that into a, a capital value uh, on the on the sale. Uh, on that would have been justice... factored in, right? Say that again. That would have been factored into the sale price. Uh, maybe. And so this is Lord Clark saying, you know, it might have an impact on the claim because we we don't know uh, what um, the figures would be on the sale, but. Um, you know, you'd, you'd have to look to see, um, has your sale price uh, been affected by the fact that uh, there was no existing charter running because they'd accepted the breach? Are you, are you with me? So there wasn't a charter for the ve uh, vessel at that time. So the purchaser would be free to do whatever they would with it at that point. But it also uh, presupposes the state of the market at that particular time whether there would have been a fresh charter possible, and if so, at what rate. So I think it's just Lord Clark playing with the facts and saying, um, although he's rejecting uh, the, the capital value as having anything at all to do with the lost income stream, he does then say, ah, oh, but in some circumstances, uh, maybe it would have an impact because um, you, you arguably you have converted your asset uh, on the sale. So you've now got sale proceeds and you have stopped the running of your lost income stream. You know, you, you can't have it both ways. Just to come back to your justice and fairness argument, you can't have uh, a claim for lost income for a, a one year period left to run when you have actually sold the vehicle at vessel sorry and so you wouldn't have had that income but stream the but in your example so to to make sure that i follow you maggie are you so well it's not the, me it's lord clark in uh, fairness <laughs> sorry in fairness no but <laughs> to make sure that it's i an follow, exclusion clause now um, i'm neither taking the credit nor the blame for this <laughs> so to to make sure that i follow the example is given if there was a breach by the other part by the um 
charter yeah. run after one year? Yeah, well, that, 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 he's, he's saying if, um, if the sale is such, you could say that uh, the sale of the vessel early has uh, stopped the running of your income loss stream because you have decided but to sell. But is that following a say breach? Say that again. Is that, is yes, that following a yes. breach of the other party? So if you've got a two-year period of claim of lost income, which you are suing the charterer for, he might be able to say, hang on, you've actually sold the vessel at uh, one year in of that two-year period that you're claiming from me, and therefore you haven't got uh, a two-year period of lost income. You've only got a one-year period of lost income because you have decided to sell it, and that has stopped the running of your income losses. That's the bit, I think, in the judgment that Chitty on contract says, uh, not sure about that. Uh, but it wasn't part of well, the I'm ratio. Sure it wasn't part of the ratio. So it's, yeah. it's, it's you know, just an aside um, comment. Yeah, I, I think I'm not sure either, because if there is a, whether there is a breach after one year, first of all, they wouldn't be claiming for two years, they would be claiming for the well, one year. Well, that's, that's his point, uh, I think. He's saying you couldn't claim for the full two years, possibly, you, as, as Tim is saying, you'd have to look at um, what difference uh, it made on the sale, the fact that you've not got this running charter. Um, but in principle, he says it might, the sale during the period of the repudiated charter might end the period for which the lost income stream has been sustained. So y you would be agreeing with that, Severin, from what you've just said. You're, you're saying they wouldn't be able to claim the whole two years. They'd only be able to claim for the period up to the date of sale. Well, as uh, I, I say that in the sense that I, it's, it's in their, their sale, the vessel following a breach after yeah. one year, in which case, in, even if they don't sell the, the, the vessel, they would only be entitled to claim one year because they have not suffered, they've only suffered... Oh, their, no, no, it's, the, it's a slightly the, different point. Um, you're, you're looking to um, calculate the total lost uh, income stream that you're claiming as damages. And, and the question is, does a sale uh, that happens during that that period yet to elapse would that make any difference to your claim for lost income and so lord clark is saying well maybe it maybe it does but nobody's asked us to look at that specifically in this case mm. i think this potentially opens a whole mm. kind of worms uh and so therefore i would um agree with the editors but i don't understand i don't see why it would make a difference whether they stop if if as on the facts here, they 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 re-delivered the vessel, you know, effectively at the beginning of the contract. You know, the two years haven't mm -hmm. run at all. Then they can claim two years. If after one year they say actually we don't want it anymore, uh, and then the uh, other party decides to sell the vessel, that nothing has changed. They still, you know, the decision to sell the vessel according to what their law lords lord clark said here it mm. shouldn't have to make yeah. any difference well. so yeah that is actually uh, so you a have a, just a question over that so 
you know, it, these are tangled things, aren't they? I think we would agree that thus far, <laughs> Un- untangling yes. causation and applying it in yeah. particular factual uh, situation. Uh, the, the rules are easy to state um, and uh, often quite hard to apply. Yes, yes. Yeah, that, that is a really tough question, isn't it? Like, I, the, the, the more I think about it, the more we can, the more we can really go down that that rabbit hole. Um, because partly, a is it taken into account in the sale price, if at all? Um, because presumably, the if if the vessel is sold, say it's a two year period, the vessel is sold after one year and there's no breach, then either they're going to assign the contract then to the new owners, in which case the new owners would claim, or they have some kind of deal where that's taken into account with the new owners. It would be reflected, I think, in the uh, the agreed purchase price, um, whether you've got an existing charter still running and uh, also the market value for charters mm. at, that, at that point. So if it has no charter at that point, uh, the purchasers, what, what is their intentions on, on using the thing? So if they're looking for a charter elsewhere, it, it then gets complicated, doesn't it? As really to the, avail- the availability of an alternative for them. Um, so, yeah, I think shipping can be rather tortured. Shall I put it that way? Yes, yes, I think it can. Um, that's a. Wow. So I, I just picked up, Suddenly. if anybody wants to look, Chitty, and I think I made a note the right paragraph. It's 26 107. Um, they say this bit might prove controversial. Uh, this, this bit about um, a sale, whether it has an impact on the end point of the lost income stream claim damages. For us academics to to pour over and 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 agree or disagree with it, I think this is you know I to make sure that I don't make a fool of myself because I I don't actually quite you know follow how and why he makes that point because he they they emphasize so much that one is the income stream uh, and one is the um uh, the 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 capital sorry one is the income stream and well one there you the go you, you'd be value, agreeing so. with the editors of chitty on contract and and you would be yeah in hallowed well, company I, I it's always you know <laughs> given who the editors is it's probably not about you know no, it's, that, it's uh, usually that, a safe position to, to take well yeah. done severin yeah it is yeah <laughs> no but I, I i i don't quite understand why you know there seem lord clark um appears to be saying Look, this is not complicated. This is very simple. We can deal with it. In <laughs> and then he makes it very complicated. Um, <laughs> you know, and then suddenly seems to reintroduce. Yeah. You know, the yeah. The, that so I need to actually. I suppose could could we say this for students or or any happy listener who's still struggling with this? Uh, they've probably given up. They've probably given up. Five minutes ago. <laughs> That um, causation and this sort of but for test is is often very tricky, isn't it? Because but for is a, a particular yes. wide possibility. You know, were it not for the breach, yeah. what would have happened? Well, you know, how wide do you want to go? Uh, and that and that's the problem with it, isn't it? And, and uh, it's not your area, but actually, for anyone listening. Um, that was uh, the forefront of the recent insurance case 
um, um, Financial Conduct Authority and ARCH. So if anyone's interested in that, that, that's one where the Supreme Court had to look at causation in an insurance setting. And, and again, there they've said, oh, the but for test. Uh, I know tort law is keen on it. Uh, and we use it in, in contract as well for causation, but it's a bit, well, this is my language, not theirs. Uh, it's a bit of a blunt instrument mm. uh, because it, it it can be very wide. You know, if we assume that this breach did not happen, what would have happened uh, to the claimant? What financial position would they have been in? You know, uh, how where do you stop? Because, uh, you know, it's a domino effect with, with causation, isn't there? So there has to be rules of of containing this uh, and and but four is, is 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 just so wide so you know looking at this vessel you know all of these things have arisen and wouldn't possibly have arisen but for the breach but if we come back to the sale i i think the key point is lord clark is saying um the sale could have happened at any time regardless of the breach so um perhaps it's not satisfying a, a but for test if we apply those sorts of language to it and and he kind of like is uh, skirting around that but he, he talks about it's the occasion for the sale rather than the cause of the sale which is another way of, of looking at the but for test i think but but yeah these things are, are not not easy isn't it but um we have to be careful that we don't have decisions that are based purely on justice and fairness that's why i come back to arguing about that because, you know, you end up doing what you think is right. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, you know, we've we've already talked a lot and I think, you know, it probably will be uh, soon ending this, but we can revisit. I still think the judge can never do that, uh, either in interpreting a contract because uh, either the clause is clear or, you know, so the judge, are, I, I think the judges are very clear that they cannot interfere with a party's business either when they are implying a term or when they are interpreting a contract. So I have, you know, being a civil lawyer, uh, you know, being also trained in, 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 in the common law, I can see that this is an argument that the uh, English judges um, are very sure that they will never do. <laughs> could, could we explore one more aspect that I, that I just, just, to, just to, yeah, be annoying? Um, if, on, be again. Um, if if we let let's go down the route let's go with the court of appeals decision let's let's assume we we that was the final final say on this and we look at the market at the time of breach and let's say there was no market at the time of breach but a year later the market opened up Right, the market opens up. Now, if market we... for chartering or selling it, chartering. Uh huh. Um, so we're imagining a, a slightly different case. If if we were to go with the whole comparison of what the ship was worth then and what the ship is worth two years later, and and we're getting that into that difficulty, wouldn't that also mean that we then need to take into account that there was an available market for mitigating a year later? And therefore, that would have to be taken into account, which brings back the uncertainty. So what are you saying? Um, if, a, if a charter was available at a later point, yeah. the, in, the income from that charter, yes, I would say, if I'm following you correctly, ought to be a set off 
from the claim for lost income stream. So if yeah. you've got two years left to run on this charter, which has been breached, say, right at the early point, as Severine was saying, and you are able to find an alternative charter, say, uh, five months, six months in, you have a replacement income from Four. that five or six month point to whenever that charter ends and possibly there is a following charter. So, yes, that would be naturally uh, rightly argued, I would say, as, as mitigation because you are replacing a lost income, which you have co uh, had caused to you suffered because of the breach and you've replaced it with exactly the same sort of thing. It might not be at the same rate. It might be higher. It might be lower. So to the extent that it's lower, then uh, the claimant has the benefit of that, as it were, to the extent that that's higher then uh, the, the wrongdoer, the defendant um, party in breach has the benefit of it. So yeah, I would say yes, in principle. So what does that do then to our argument earlier on, which where we were saying, well, that removes the whole efficacy of anticipatory breach, which will be at the moment in time of the breach? Um, that's only telling you, isn't it, that uh, the innocent party, if we use that strange language, the party not in breach, has their choice to be made at that accelerated moment in time. So uh, am I going to accept your breach or not? So I make my decision then. Um, and then thereafter, all right, we start with the general principle. We calculate losses at that point. But I think, you know, you'd probably know this better than me, um, but my memory is that's just a sort of starting point. It is possible mm. for the, the damages to be as, assessed at a different date. And I think most courts yes. would say we can't shut our eyes to the facts that yeah. have happened. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that would naturally, I think, um, be, therefore be taken into account. So the, the rules about anticipatory breach ought not shackle the court, if you like, in terms of the assessment of quantum in an artificial or, or unrealistic fashion. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. I think I think therefore that that argument that we made earlier on might not be quite as effective. Um, it was just a thought that came to me uh, along the way. A bit disjointed, sorry. Well, I suppose this is related to Lord Clark's throwaway remark, as it were. Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Well, I think that's. I think he. I think that's what he's saying. Uh, he can see that that may well be a, a relevant point for some other case, but I don't think anyone argued it in this case. So we don't have clear rule about yes, it. Yes, I think there is definitely, I'm, I'm trying to think on my feet here, but I definitely think that there is, you know, something to be explored uh, in that throwaway comment, but also in relation to what it is that you have just uh, argued that uh, the anticipatory breach is definitely a really uh, different species in relation to calculation uh -huh. of damages, because also, you know, we always say uh, damages are going to be calculated usually at the time of breach, you know, that is a, a, a rule which, you know, has exception and clearly anticipatory breach uh, does. Um, I have at the back of my mind uh, a case, but I won't, no, I, I, I can't think of my feet because I don't have my uh, everything, but I think definitely this is something worth exploring 
showing the peculiarity of anticipatory breach in terms of um, assessment of damage. Should it be that peculiar, just to throw a spanner in your works? Agreed. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a really good question. Why should it? Why should it have well, special the, rules about its? Uh, you know, what's what's the justification? Well, the the the, the point that uh, Tim has just mentioned and that you have replied to. Uh, because then effectively the assessment is not done until the uh, time remaining. But we have that general uh, rule anyway, so it's not peculiar to anticipatory breach. It's just as as a norm, damages should be assessed at the moment of breach. That's the clear rule um, for all types of breach, but it's not a hard and fast, it has to be in every particular case. Um. Hold on, say that again. That's what. Well, no, but it is. It is easy. You know, if if it's an actual yes. breach, what happens afterwards is completely, you know, irrelevant. Uh, and so it's easier to assess the the the, the damages whilst in. Well, an I suppose all I'm breach. saying is there isn't a, a hard and fast rule that is in every single case that will be so. Because there are some cases where judges say, well, this is this is the assumption or presumption that we work on, that damages are assessed at the moment yeah. of breach. But in, in some instances, Absolutely. because of the circumstances and because of the facts that we have seen has actually happened, uh, that can be modified. Uh, and all I'm saying, I think, is that general approach applies also to anticipatory breach. So I'm just sort of querying what, to what extent should anticipatory breach have special rules and to what extent does it have special rules? So I'm, I'm just wondering about that, that's all. I, th I think that's a good question because the, the whole point of anticipatory breach surely is that you get the whole thing dust, done and dusted early on so that the parties can get on with things. And all it's done is to accelerate the, the moment of uh, breach, if you like, uh, from where you would naturally have expected to have seen it at the date of performance, uh, when it was performance was due, to an earlier point in time. Yes, but That's by all. the fact that they can take into consideration uh, a known event, um, the assessment does not stop until... So to take the point, if I understand what you are saying, Tim, um, so there, there is no available market at the time of the anticipatory breach. Uh, six months later, they managed to find another um, uh, charter party. So it's six months since the breach that is taken into consideration. Therefore, how long do they have to wait until they eventually find um, uh, uh, another charter party? So well, these are the just, just part that, of the that, general that... rules about mitigation, isn't yeah. it, really? So yes. uh, not an yes. awful lot is expected of the innocent party because he's the innocent party, uh, but but he's, he's expected to... to act reasonably he can't predict the future 
And none of us can, although perhaps he would have specialist knowledge in his particular market. So as long as he's sensible and reasonable and sane, uh, then the law is reasonably tolerant of what he does do or what he fails to do, as it were. But it still so imposes I, I would, a duty would... on them or an obligation on them to continue yeah. looking yeah. Yeah. for... Yes. Yeah. Because the rationale, coming back to your justice fairness thing, the, the, the idea, uh, well, this is fine, I, I accept entirely because these are high-level principles, because the rationale behind that is you can't sit on your hands and do nothing and, and load all the loss onto the wrongdoer purely because he is the wrongdoer. That is an uncommercial uh, behaviour and the law expects you to behave in a sensible commercial uh, way or justice fairness uh, mm -hmm. uh, as you would like to cast it. That's that's fine. So I think I'm, that's I'm not, just I think it goes are. further than that. I think it's because the income stream would have been ongoing. You have yeah. an ongoing duty up until that point. I think. I think it's. Uh, I mean, also that's a, a fairness justice point, I guess. But the the yeah. the obligation continues because the contract would have continued, right? And and so you can presumably offset the cost of looking for it against the continuous yeah. income that would have been. So yeah. I think I think there from from that point of view that 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 makes sense. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. What's interesting is that for two years, no market opened up. So therefore, that's... Just from a factual point, that seems hard to imagine. Yes. Doesn't it? Well, I suppose, Maggie, you'll know, you know more about this. Well, well, not really, but, you know, uh, shipping is a peculiar world. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, sometimes the market is, is volatile and, and sometimes it ain't. And, uh, you, you know... Um, that, that's what we've had um, just to come off tax lightly with the uh, the Achilles, haven't we? Um, you know, that, that yeah. case about volatile shipping markets, I, I mm. think it is a peculiar world um, in a sense. I'd love uh, to that unpack is... that judgment, by the way. Yeah, well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, maybe we need to because that's the, that's the decision I was uh, thinking about and I can't, uh, I'm trying, desperately trying to open a, a document where the court made the you know the, the point that of course this is an anticipatory yeah. breach again, uh, and so the rules do not apply when there is an actual breach, and that's what you know. But my word has frozen, so maybe this is the you know the next um, you know. Yeah, it's, it's never ending. This unpacking, isn't it? <laughs> Once you start, there will always be something to unpack. <laughs> there will. There will always be yes. something to argue and debate. No, debate was the word. Was debate, the word? debate. We're not. We're not. Argue. We're not arguing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Tim and Maggie, thank you for. Um, when I finished reading this case, I thought, great, sorted, easy decision. And now you've just highlighted, actually, I don't know whether it oh is dear. that easy. Have we, so have thank we made you it very worse? much. We have... <laughs> Isn't that no, our no, job? No, it's Isn't that exactly what we're meant to do? That, you know, that... Hmm. that yeah, that's that, that line. Where there is light, we shall bring darkness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The film is coming to you soon, <laughs> where there will be light, there will be darkness. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. Okay. Um, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, uh, Maggie. Goodbye, team. And thank you for debating uh, with me. Thank you.